And would you join with me again in a word of prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, even as I say those names, Lord, they, 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 they only scratch the surface of the meaning of each word, that you are a God of all grace and you are in a relationship with us as your children, for you are our Father. And Lord, the, the, the majesty overarches all of the heavens, our heavenly gracious Father. Help us, Lord, to be able to treasure your name today and in the hollowing of that name, Lord, find in our lives your wonder at work. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, I, I understand and I have to um, suspect that many of you have been to Hawaii and if you have, you know that the native Hawaiians there have a word to describe uh, those of us who are non-natives. It's the word howly, howly. It's not the word hallowed. It's not our Father who art in heaven, howly be thy name. It's not that word. It's the word howly. And from what I understand, it's not always used in a very kind way. Since I was a bit curious about the meaning of the word, I appreciated reading an explanation that was given by Alice Kahalululuna, and she, I, I got that word right. Uh, she writes this, she goes, Before the missionaries came, my people used to sit outside their temples for a long time, meditating and preparing themselves before entering for worship and prayer. And then, after they had prepared themselves, they would virtually creep to the altar and then offer their petition and afterwards would again sit a long time outside, this time to breathe life into their prayers. The Christians, when they came, just got up, uttered a few sentences, said amen, and were done. And for that reason, my people called them howlies, which in our language means without breath. And, and, and those who are called howlies are those who fail to breathe life into their prayers. Now, I want to be very careful not to use this against the Hawaiian Christians and the missionaries who went to Hawaii. Lord knows that Missionaries get enough undeserved criticism, but I wonder if this word howly might well describe the condition too many of us find ourselves living in, in, in the fast lane of life and, and, and find that our prayers are delivered in little microbursts, uh, little drive-by shots of prayer, dashing ourselves into God's presence, somehow uttering a few platitudes with a few words or racing uh, uh, through the grown throne room of our God, uh, our Heavenly Father, and then dropping off this list of demands and then running back out into the rat race, really never giving pause to, to breathe life into our prayers. According to Jesus, prayer was intended to be so, so much more. In Matthew chapter 6 and Verse 9, Jesus took us to school saying, pray then this way. And as you may remember from last week, he invited us then to address God at the same level of relationship that he himself possessed as the Son of God. Pray then this way, our Father. And with that then, Jesus told us to elevate our prayer life 
far above the rat race and the early pressures of our time and our space relationships and take our conversation of prayer into heaven and sit a spell. Say it, our Father, and then mean it, our Father who art in heaven. Now, as we observe the season of prayer at Ebenezer for the 60 days, I would suggest that we would take this thought to heart. I had a psalm read for us this, uh, this morning, Psalm 46, and, and, and it was one that was used by some of the Old Testament saints really to prepare themselves for prayer. Preparations that would take them out of the vicious circle of, of, of fear that you see in that psalm as it unfolds, uh, of a changing world of, of roaring waters and of quaking mountains and, and, and to a place finally of clarity where God is not only Father but is omniscient and, and omnipresent and omnipotent. Uh, a place where, as we read in Psalm 46 and verse 10, where striving ceases... And God can be known. Cease striving and know God. And when Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, he established a foundation of awareness that is intended to breathe life into our prayers. And because that foundation is in heaven, it allows us not only to see God as he is, but then to be able to see the rest of our world and all of its concerns from his perspective where the people or events that have caused us to pray or the situations that have given us such deep concern find themselves encircled by his very being and then transformed by his very presence. And so we pray in this way, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, as a technical note, the the Lord's Prayer itself can be divided uh, or outlined into six petitions, prayer requests, specific prayer requests. The first and the foremost, the, the ones I would call foundational, the first three foundational prayer requests really have God at heart. That his name be hallowed, that his will be done, and that his kingdom come. Those are prayer requests. And it's only when these three are then on the table, according to Jesus, that then our concerns actually find their place. The last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are for, uh, for God to give us and to forgive us and to deliver us. <laughs> what, what, what a contrast to the way we tend to compose our prayers, where what's really important is what we need. And oh, by the way, I hope you're doing good, Heavenly Father. No, prayers begin with a concern for God. And such a concern that then clears the way for him then to go to work in our lives with the full authority and according to his plan. And so the first petition that we have in this prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. Now we may read these words and make the mistake of thinking that they simply add detail to what we know about God. Kind of like saying, Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Just saying something about him. But that's not the way Jesus puts it. That's not what he says. The simple line in his prayer is not an assertion that God's name is holy. It is a petition. 
that God's name be made holy and that his holiness would have an impact on our lives and then in our world. It's not an assertion, it's a petition. And do you know what a petition is? I, I, I have to think that everybody does. For some, it might bring to mind a piece of paper that's passed around for other people to sign in hopes that they can build up enough support on an issue that will force something happen, a, a government policy to change or a homeowner's association to reverse a decision. And if you need an example, I've got a petition to get my homeowner's association to get rid of the 15 speed bumps in my neighborhood, in case any of you would care to sign. But back to the point. You understand what a petition is. It's a request to change the rules of the game and to influence certain actions. And here, Jesus indicates that we, his disciples, should join him with our prayers. And at the very beginning, he enlists us into his petition that God would break through our, in our, into our world and become all that he can be. And that his name would be made holy and that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done. And so at the very beginning, Jesus puts out three prayer requests on behalf of God. The first being that the name of God would be regarded as holy in our lives and in our world. And this particular request is really then balanced on those two words, name and hallowed, or to be made holy. So the first thing we need to consider as we look at this is, what do we need to know about the name of God? I mean, for us... Names may not necessarily seem important. They, they actually sometimes are used as just convenient labels that we use to identify each other, and if we forget them, we can always fall back on nicknames. I mean, if you forget somebody's name, you can always cover your mistake and look at them and assume that they'll feel the affection that you have for them if you look at them and say, hey, slugger, how you doing? Hey, dude, what's new? Uh, hey, captain, what's up? Uh, I remember when I was pastor at Bethany and the church was, was growing and I was, more and more people were coming. I'd go into the mall or someplace in, in town and, and, and somebody would come up and say, Hi, pastor. They knew my name. <laughs> and, and I'd be scratching my head as I'm, I'm scrambling. And I, so I had a whole, a whole galaxy of names. Hey, Captain, how you doing? You know, so, so if I ever see you on the street and say, Hey, slugger, you know I'm really working hard trying to come up with a name. You know? For us, names may not really seem that important, but for Jesus, for the disciples, the word name was anything but a convenient label. It was, in fact, a necessary title that revealed the very nature of a person. It was an essential title that defined the character and identified the essential attributes, especially when it was applied to the name of God. And it revealed all of the latent potential that was to be experienced in being in a relationship with that person. For for us, we may read the, the simple word name and then be tempted to move on, but for Jesus and the disciples, it had a very profound, profound expression. You see, for the Jews, the name of God had be, had become a long list of attributes that had come from their personal and corporate experience. If you were to go to the biblical dictionaries, you would find under the list Jehovah's superlatives. Let me share a few examples. 
In Genesis chapter 2, he was called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. It was a testimony of an experience of him providing. And so his attributes were seen. He was a God who provides, Jehovah Jireh. In Exodus 17, 14, he was Jehovah Nisei, the Lord who is my banner, the one who defines my very being. In Jeremiah 23, verse 6 and 33, 16, he was Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who was there, the one who was constantly present and near. He was known as Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Jehovah Tzedkeno, the God of righteousness. Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Jehovah Megodeshkin, the God who sanctifies. The list goes on. There's more and more. But you get the idea that the name was more than just a name. It was the promise of the potential that existed in knowing that person who is behind the name. That if you walked with that person and talked with that person and lived with that person long enough, you too would be able to know the truth of that name and maybe give another name as well. For those in Jesus' day, there was enough history to confirm the reality of each of the names that were given to God. And so it's no wonder that we would read in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, some may boast in chariots and horses, but we will boast in the name, the character, the attributes of the Lord our God. And, and to bring this concept home, the same is very true of Jesus Christ. After all, in the Old Testament, we are told of his potential. In Isaiah chapter 9, when we are introduced to the child who was born, the son who was to be given, and whose name would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior know the reality behind each one of those titles. He is wonderful. He is the best of counselors. He is mighty. He is eternally there as Father. And He rules in our heart as He is the Prince of Peace. You know the name. And if you do, it it, it just seems to, to percolate into your experience. So feel free to join me in singing that chorus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. Back to the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaches us to pray, 
He opens our eyes to see the fullness and the glory of God and then asks us to pray that it would be hollowed in our lives and in our world. The fact is there are untold treasures for anyone who knows God by name. But unless you take the effort to seek them out, they will in fact remain untold. (laughs) Which takes us to the second word, that is in that phrase, the name, from name to hollow. What does it mean to hollow the name of God? To hollow the name of Jesus Christ. I love the way one commentator, uh, John MacArthur, defined it. He said, to hollow God's name means that you hold his matchless being in such reverence that you will believe whatever he says, that you will obey whatever he wills, and you will expect him to be whoever he is. And so it begins with you taking him to heart. Now, I find it significant that when Jesus taught us how to pray, the first thing he chose to tell us about prayer is that the name of God be regarded as sacred by those who would pray. My suspicion is that very few people today would consider the hollowing of the name of God a top priority in prayer. But here it is at the very top of the list. Why? I'm convinced that the lesson that Jesus had here is that it is futile for us to waste our breath in praying, hoping with any of the other petitions that his kingdom was come or that his will would be done, that would be pointless for us to expect God to manifest himself in power on this planet unless the name of God is in fact regarded as sacred in our lives and in our eyes. Why? (laughs) Because God's kingdom does not come to people who have no respect for him. And God's will is not done by people who do not regard him with utter reverence and overwhelming adoration. So the very beginning of godliness, the very beginning of transformation in our lives, and the very beginning of transformation in our society begins with us knowing God by name and then holding his matchless being with such reverence that it shapes everything we believe, everything we live and how the holiness of his name would then move into our world. So when Jesus says that we should pray that God's name be regarded as holy, he is saying that we should regard him as holy, and that such a posture of reverence, awe, and respect for God should define everything in our lives. And might I suggest becomes, in fact, for us the true lever by which we are then able to inject the holiness of his kingdom which comes and his will to be done into our world. It begins here before it begins to break out there. A number of years ago, I saw that lesson at work in the life of a very, very, very dear friend who just died a year and a half ago. His name was Dennis. And every year, a whole group of men, almost 40 in total, we convene uh, for a golf tournament in Kamloops in the beginning of June out of our common friendship with Dennis. Our tournament, in fact, is in his name. The tournament was originally organized by a few of his friends as a way to encourage him and has since then become a way for us to find a way to encourage each other with that same sort of encouragement. 
You see, at one time, Dennis went sideways in life, and he ended up a broken man in jail. But a few of his friends kept faith with him and, in turn, ignited his faith in God. And knowing that he loved golf, when he got out of jail, they used golf then as a common ground to keep him on the straight and narrow, to encourage him to be a man of God. You can do that in golf at the same time. And the, and, and the, and, and the, and the tournament was given birth, and, and Dennis, through it, also took on a new mission in life to share his faith and to encourage others as well. One day he shared <clears throat> a story with my son and myself about his first few years as a man of faith coming out of jail. He got a job in a warehouse in Tilbury in Ladner driving a forklift. And, and, and every day at lunch, he and the rest of the warehouse crew would meet in the lunchroom and play pinochle. But over time, he found himself increasingly disturbed by the language around that table, especially at the name of Jesus, the way it was being used. You know what I'm talking about, how the name sometimes appears more often, actually, as a curse, Jesus. It really began to bruise his heart. So he shared it with his wife, who, by the way, is this wonderful, angelic, and warm Christian. I just love her to death. What should I do, he asked her. He said, every time they say, Jesus, it really hurts me now. It never hurt me before, ever. But now, now that I'm a man of faith, it's really bothering me. It bruises me to hear it. I just loved her advice. She says, Dennis, they don't know who Jesus is, but you do. So every time they say his name, use it to remind yourself who he is and then praise him. (laughs) Well, you have to know Dennis, he had to know him to really appreciate what happened next. He was really quite one of the most delightful, simple, affable characters I've ever met. And this was his way of taking his wife's words to heart. He would sit down with his friends at the card table, and one of them would blurt out the name, Jesus. And just to himself, he would then mutter to himself, is Lord. Jesus is Lord. No big fanfare. He was just talking to himself. Didn't say anything to anybody else at the table, just to himself. Jesus is Lord. It became a simple habit, and I suppose you would say by that he was hollowing the name of the Lord. One day he was late coming into lunch. He walked into the room, and the game had already started. And as he tells the story, he went over to the microwave to prepare his food when he heard one of the men at the table uh, shouted out, Jesus! There was a moment of, of silence, and then to Dennis' surprise, everyone around the table said, Is Lord. <laughs> now, now, I don't want to make too much of it as a group confession of faith around that table, but I do take it to heart. If I want to live in a holy place, and I do, if I want God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, and I do, it begins with me. And it begins with you. And it begins when together we pray that that prayer with an earnestness of, of heart. Hallowed be thy name. And when I pray that, just by the economy of heaven, it, it, I become the answer to that prayer as well. And so do you. So let's make this our prayer. Let's do it together. You'll, you'll find that prayer in your worship folder and you will see it on the screen. 
<laughs> in fact, you may notice that I've clarified one word from last week, the, the word debt and debtors. It's a lesson I learned some time ago that Luther, Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans, they're all trespassers. But we Baptists, we, we're, we're debtors. So, so please, I want you to pray together with me again the, the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. And as we do, let's regard him as holy. And, and that with such a posture of reverence, awe, and respect for God, that in our prayer we will allow him to define everything in our lives and in our fellowship. Let us pray, and two together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.